Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Turtle Radio. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, plenty to go over on the show on this Wednesday, December the 22nd. Uh, the year of our Lord 2021 is just about done. Uh, we're almost to Christmas for those observing that. Uh, it's Festivus tomorrow for those of you that need to figure out what your grievances are to air them tomorrow. If you celebrate that, uh, wherever you are with you and yours, we hope you're having a great holiday season, a good end of the year. And we're going to be right here with you through the end of it on Herd Tell. Uh, we're going to start off with a story we've already been covering. You've heard tell about Ping Shui. This is the Chinese tennis player. We've covered it on this show. It's been all over social media. Um, I'm just going to be blunt. I don't really have anything clever to lead into this. We just watched the Chinese Communist Party re-educate somebody right before our very eyes, live in color on social media. That's what has happened here. Let's back up. Ping Shui was, is a champion-level tennis player, an Olympian, a Grand Slam-level talent, um, popular athlete, well-known athlete inside of China. All this started uh, a while back when she posted a message on social media uh, accusing the former vice premier of China of assaulting her, sexually assaulting her. Uh, that post is still available. You can find it all over social media. People have screenshotted and saved it. It's since been deleted. Uh, she disappeared for weeks on end. Nobody knew where she was. Uh, this attack on the former vice premier of China. Uh, the women, the World Tennis Association pulled their events out of China. There was a lot of pressure on the IOC, the uh, International Olympic Committee, to do something because the upcoming winter games that are going to be in China, of course, they didn't. Uh, there was this really bizarre incident where the chairman of the IOC said she, they had a video conference with her a few weeks ago. Anyway, uh, long story short, uh, Ping Shui has reemerged. Uh, I'm going to read from The Guardian, and then I'll comment on it a little bit further. Uh, on Sunday, Ping said a message she posted on Weibo, China's Twitter-like platform that's state-controlled, by the way, completely state-controlled. They have state versions of whatever social media it is so they can control it themselves. That's what Weibo is. Uh, in early November, in which she accused the former vice premier, Zhang Gaoli, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that, of sexual assault had been, quote, misunderstood. This is a quote from her on this new message. First, I need to stress one point that is extremely important. I have never said or written that anyone sexually assaulted me. I have to clearly, I have to clearly stress this point, Ping said at a cross-country skiing event in Shanghai. In a video posted by Singaporean outlet Lene Zebo, I again apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, my Chinese and my hillbilly con 
conflict greatly on these things, but we're trying our best, folks. The statement was the first time the player had publicly addressed her previous allegations in person. The 35-year-old also said she was not being surveilled or monitored. I'm reading from The Guardian, quote, I've always been very free, she told the reporter. She added that the post was a, quote, private matter and that, quote, people may have many misunderstandings about it, but did not elaborate. She made no mention of Zhang, who has not commented on the matter. In a statement on Monday, the WTA, that's the Tennis Association, said, we remain steadfast in our call for a full, fair, and transparent investigation without censorship into her alleged allegation of sexual assault, which is the issue that gave rise to our initial concern. Ping disappeared from public life for almost three months after a, the Weibo post prompting international concerns over her well-being. China has not commented officially on Ping's initial post, which was scrubbed from China's heavily censored internet within half an hour. Although, again, folks, you can get screenshots of this. It's still out there, that initial statement. It's readily available. You can search it on social media or Google. It will come up, at least for now. If you get it come up, you might want to save it because the way everybody kowtows to the Chinese Communist Party online right now, they're probably trying to get rid of it. So do save it to your phone or device, please. Anywho. Her subsequent silence triggered a social media campaign under the hashtag Where is Ping Shui? Sunday's video also showed Ping saying she had personally written a message last month to the WT head, Steve Simon, denying any assault allegations and that any that an English translation of the message published by Chinese state media was accurate. At the time of the email, Simon said he had a hard time believing that Ping had written it. The screenshot of Ping's message on social media drew skepticism after observer drew attention to the text cursor in the middle of the email. This month, the WTA announced it was suspending all tournaments in China. China has become the WT's biggest market in recent years, but has not hosted any events for two years because of coronavirus. Um, it was good to see Ping sway in a public setting, and we certainly hope she is doing well, the WTA said. As we have consistently stated, these appearances do not alleviate or address the WTA's significant concerns about her well-being and ability to communicate without censorship or coercion. Ping's last statement did not allay concerns among international rights groups about her welfare. Uh, wow, so natural, so very real. Everyone now believes it. Congratulations to CCP, Yang Wang, a Chinese researcher in human rights, tweeted sarcastically. Zhang, this is the person she accused of assaulting her, was a member of the party's all-powerful Politburo Standing Committee until 2018 and a senior lieutenant to the president and party leader Xi Jinping. He has not appeared in public or commented. That's from The Guardian. That's where we're at on this. Here's why I say we just watch somebody be really educated before our very eyes. Um, the Chinese propaganda arm and social media mouthpieces are vast. If you tweet or Facebook or any kind of social media about China, one of these little, uh, let's call them troll shop people, will pop up immediately defending whatever it is you're saying. Uh, let's be adults. That Ping Shui, after disappearing for three months, showed up at a state-sponsored event in public and talked to a state-sponsored reporter and just happened to be there to talk to the state-sponsored reporter about how this was all a big misunderstanding after being disappeared for three months. Come on now. We're adults. We all know better than this. They have coerced her. They have threatened her, her family, whatever they needed to do. And when they felt comfortable that they could once again trust her in public, they are now slowly rolling her back out into public life to say all the right things. They even trotted out uh, other Chinese celebrities to meet with her and these sorts of things. This is how re-education in the Chinese Communist Party works. They threaten you, they silence you, 
And then they put you back out there to spout off the propaganda after they've re-educated you and or coerced you into understanding that it's all one China and the Chinese Communist Party in China and the Chinese people are all one. Uh, we're never going to do that because they are not one. The Chinese Communist Party is a leech. It is a tyrannical regime sucking the life out of the Chinese people, and we're never going to stop saying so. Their human rights abuses are legion. The things they are doing to the Uyghur population, the things they do to any dissent, the things they are doing in Hong Kong, the things they are doing to encroach into other countries, both physically, militarily, like they've done before, and like they are doing through economic means, the way they are using predatory debt to take over infrastructure in other countries, their Belt and Road Initiative, which is their linchpin for domination for the next 25, 30 years. This is an imperialistic society on the march that wants world control and domination. And the, the Chinese Communist Party is wicked and evil and oppressive and brutal. And I'm an American. So if the Chinese mouthpieces don't like that, they can sit it and spin on it. That's the truth. They can point out all the flaws in America they want. It doesn't do anything wrong for their wickedness. And with Xi Jinping, we know how they do things. They are so touchy to their power that they have now gone out. And in his book on China, you cannot have less than a five-star rating on Amazon for his book. Think of how petty you have to be to be that way. But that's because this is all about power. It's about control. It's about controlling narrative inside of China, making sure the Chinese people only see and hear approved things. So when Ping Shui comes out and just happens to run into a state media person and a state media reporter with a state media camera handy by to make sure it all gets recorded for state media and state controlled social media, we know exactly what is happening in front of our very eyes. They have re-educated someone right in front of us. It's just she's famous enough that we can notice it if we bother trying. And we should say so because they're doing it to millions and millions of people who are not famous, who do not have international reach and do not have the ability to have people advocate for them. We should never forget the suffering Chinese people who are underneath the Chinese Communist Party's thumb. They're going to continue to do this because they need the economic power of the Chinese people. And they don't care about them one little bit other than the power they can get from them. When you see somebody being re-educated before your very eyes, understand there's millions more that don't have the voice or the attention to do anything about it. And those of us that have freedom and have platforms and have a voice, we need to use it for those that don't. So even if she's in a position where she has to kowtow to them for whatever reason, and we're not judging her because the power they can put on somebody's family and livelihood, I'm not judging her for that. We don't know all the circumstances, but we can speak out, and we must, because they want the whole world to be like this, and we better never allow that. More Herd Tell right after this.
back to Hurtel Show. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for being with us. A uh, quick reminder, if you want to interact with the show, you can do so. Uh, we're on the Twitter at Hurtel Show. Uh, we are also on Gmail. If you want to send us an email, that'd be great. Hurtel Show at gmail.com. Uh, if you're watching on the Big Talker Facebook page, you can leave comments live as you watch the stream on Facebook. Uh, if you're watching on the YouTube channels, please subscribe and share that. And as you're watching, please leave a comment and a rating. That would be great. If you could leave a comment, we will try to answer that to you. However you want to reach out, uh, just let us know. We'll be very happy to get back to you. May even discuss it on the show, may even read it on the show, but be nice, keep your bearing. Well, we sure want to hear from you and we appreciate the feedback that we get privately that folks don't want to share. So please continue to do that. Um, I want to bring up something. Once again, how we talk about issues is just as important as which side of the issues you're taking because the the ethereal, oh, I'm right or wrong is fine, but we live in a world where you need to practically be able to do something about that knowledge of being right and wrong. So that's why we keep going back and forth to our friends at the Narratives Project. Um, on the podcast, of course, we had Sophia Sedegren Booker, uh, their deep dive in the CRT. If you haven't listened to that, please find it on the podcasting platforms or the video version on YouTube download it. It may change your perspective on how we're discussing CRT. It's a it's a grown folk talk. We're not going to debate CRT the way you've been seeing it in social media, but what you are going to get is a broad spectrum picture of how media has covered it, how they define it, how those definitions predetermine the outcome of how people process the information. I think you'll get good stuff from it. But Narratives Project has taken on something that I've been talking about uh, frequently. Uh, th this White House and the Biden administration's communication shop uh, has not bathed themselves in glory. Uh, they're not doing well communicating to the average everyday person. They do pretty good job speaking media to folks in the media, the news media that are already predisposed to like what they're saying. They do a pretty good job talking to people that already like what they're hearing, but they're not doing a very good job of being persuasive and or engaging folks that don't disagree with them. Uh, back on Friday, the White House health officials held a press briefing on the state of COVID-19. And the official that uh, was trotted out to do this, his name's Jeff Zenitz, uh, got a lot of pushback, got a lot of comments on social media. Well, Narratives Project did what they always do. They don't take a side. They take the sides and break down why each side is taking something a certain way. I'm going to read from him. This is at Narratives Project. Dot com. I encourage you to follow them on social media and get their reports. It's a great resource to give you perspective. Uh, one specific statement, reading from Narratives Project, from the briefing later sparked debate on both the left and the right. During the briefing, Jeff Sinnott, the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, said, and we're quoting here, we are intent on not letting Omicron disrupt work and school for the vaccinated. You've done the right thing, and we will get through this. For the unvaccinated, you're looking at a winter of severe illness and death for yourself, your family, and the hospitals you may soon overwhelm. Well, that's pretty bleak. You are setting yourself up for a severe winter of illness and death. Now, there's the school of thought that you have to be tough love and speak hard truths, and, and there's some truth to that. I've done some tough love. Uh, I certainly, when I was in the military, had some supervisors and officers that were all about tough love, and I'm the better for it. The problem with tough love and being blunt is it's only effective if it comes from a source that you respect and trust to go to that level of being blunt with you. 
I'm not sure that this White House and this administration has that level of trust and respect from a wide swath of people that are outside of their normal orbit and supporters. Uh, and I think this gets played played out a little bit when the Narratives Project breaks this down. Uh, again, the Narratives Project, if you go read this on the website, it is graphical. You can see it. It's actually divided into two halves. But I want to read through part of it for you because I think this is good information. What is each side focusing on? The left sees Mr. Zenitz is only stating the truth, whereas folks on the right see the White House is dodging its responsibility by blaming the unvaccinated people. The narrative on the left is this is harsh rhetoric is warranted because unvaccinated people have a long refused to listen to reason. It's good that the White House is being truthful and transparent about the risk associated with being unvaccinated, while as folks on the right are saying the narrative is the White House is trying to wiggle out of its responsibilities to the American people by blaming the unvaccinated for its failed policies. By using such hateful and divisive rhetoric, the White House is exacerbating existing divisions. How could a responsible person come to think this? This is what the Narratives Project's doing. I'm reading from them, narrativesproject.com again. On the left, how could a reasonable person come to think this? To people on the left, protecting vulnerable people in society is a primary concern, and refusal to get vaccinated puts vulnerable people at risk. Folks on the right or folks that are opposed to this, uh, they come to a reasonable place by saying to people on the right, politicians are using the pandemic to implement far-reaching policies that severely limit individual liberties especially the right for people to decide for themselves how to lead their lives. And the conclusion from the Narratives Project goes this way, because the left is prioritizing the protection of vulnerable people while the right is prioritizing individual liberties, conflict arises between the two sides about how we, as a community, should proceed. But before we write out off our contrapartisanships as brainwashed, stupid, or evil, it's helpful to remind ourselves that although our desired outcome is the same, minimalizing death and disease, our vision for how to get there differs. Both people on the left and right are advocating for actions which align with their values, trying to do what's best for them and their worldview. That's from the Narratives Project. So what do we make of all this? Um, I think it's pretty clear that, and this is a fair criticism for the last administration, for this administration, it's probably going to be a criticism of every administration that follows. It is the responsibility of the President of the United States as head of the executive branch and head of the government and head of the country how he communicates, how the presidency communicates information down to the people. It is the responsibility of the president of the United States to communicate to the American people. That's just part of the gig. And I think a lot of people have found this administration and this presidency to be lacking in it. We are two years into this, and the last administration had plenty of communication fobbles as well. So, you know, I criticize their communication, too. I'm criticizing this one for a little bit different reasons, but it's fair to criticize the president and his team for the communication. One thing that never, ever works from a presidency is if you get condescending with the American people. And this presidency, whether it's the president himself or his staff, have a habit of their social media and press releases and their press conferences getting condescending with anybody who does not align with their views. Now, I understand the severity of the issue. I understand we have a lot of people dead. I understand there's 800,000 folks that have died of COVID-19 in America and millions worldwide. I understand that the Omicron variant looks like it's going to be very, very contagious. It also looks, at least preliminarily, we've talked to our friend Michael Siegel about this. Preliminarily, it looks like it is not as severe in symptoms, but that's no reason to not take it seriously. Nevertheless, 
the White House messaging to start out and saying you are looking at a winner of death and destruction is probably not the way to go. I understand the argument that everybody that's going to get vaccinated has gotten vaccinated at this point and it's time to get tough with them. I don't think that's going to actually do anything, though, because getting tough with people who are obstinate anyway has never in the history of ever made them less obstinate. There are pressure things that have caused people to have rushes towards the vaccine. Uh, When the Delta variant came out, we saw a rush to it. Uh, When there was policies put in place that you had to get the vaccine and or there would be consequences such as not being able to work, such as not being able to go places, we saw a rush in the vaccine. What I don't know and what nobody else knows is, are we at the limits of how many people are going to get this vaccine? And people complain about the boosters need to pause as well, because remember, that last burst of vaccinations for the Delta variant, they haven't had their six-month gap to get a booster yet. So people need to kind of hold their fire on people not getting their boosters. There's lots of people that probably will get a booster that can't even get it yet because they're not six months into it. The science on COVID-19 is going to evolve. Our policies on COVID-19 ought to evolve with it. But our rhetoric and our communication has to be consistent. It's not consistent and always being right because this is an evolving thing. We know things now we didn't know in the first couple of weeks of the thing. But we should be consistent in our communication of being positive, being hopeful, giving people hope, giving people actionable data to work off of. Just telling people you're going to die if you don't get the vaccine, while maybe technically correct in some aspects, is not good leadership because you're alienating the exact same people you're trying to reach. And I know some people are going to throw their hands up and go, well, they're not going to listen anyway. That's fine. But you're still elected to do a job, Mr. President, and your comms team and your staffers and everybody that writes these sorts of things. It's your job to communicate to the people who don't agree with you, who don't listen to you. That's the gig. You're the leader of the entire country. If you want to go tough love, that's fine. Tough love sometimes works. Tough love certainly worked in my life, but the tough love that worked came from people that had my respect and who had built trust. And the Biden administration, to a lot of Americans, and we've seen it reflective reflective not only in the discourse, but in the approval numbers and in the way things have been going lately with elections, does not have a lot of respect and trust with a wide swath of America. If you want to be tough love, you got to build up that respect and trust first. Try a little of that. And that starts with communication. Do better on the communication, something that's readily controllable. And you might do better on the respect and trust issue. And then you might be listened to a little bit better when it comes to doing tough love on things like COVID-19. More Herd Tell right after this. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Turning down the noise in the news cycle to get to the information and the stories that actually matter and talking to knowledgeable guests who know what they're talking about. And we mean talk, not yelling. No caterwauling culture and politics with me, your host, Andrew Donaldson, on Hertel Radio every weekday, 6 a.m. with a replay at 3 p.m. right here on The Big Talker. back to Hertel Radio. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Very happy to be joined with, and I'm going to do this carefully, make sure I got it right, buddy, because we were practicing it. Toph Cottle. 
Tof. Like Tof. See, I still missed it. Up. Dang yeah, no Tof Coddle. Uh, short notice, uh, Young Voices contributor. Uh, really interesting guy as I was looking up some of your stuff. How are you, sir? Appreciate your time today. Hey, doing all right. Just uh, early morning in Utah, so enjoying, enjoying the time. And you are a uh, world traveler, so you're uh, all kinds of crossed up because of London time and uh, your various world travels. Uh, let folks know a little bit about you and who you are uh, before we dig into the issue of the day, my friend. Yeah, so my name is Tove Cottle. I'm currently going to school in London studying development economics. I'm doing a master's out there. I finished a master's at Johns Hopkins in international affairs, but today I'm focusing more on domestic issues, so uh, kind of kind of changing pace, I guess, for a little bit. <laughs> Sounds like it. you picked a great week for it because uh, over the weekend and for the last uh, couple of days in the news media cycle, there has been an absolute collective freakout all the way around over the Build Back Better agenda. And especially since uh, Senator Joe Manchin came out and said he's not going to support it as currently written. Uh, I have my thoughts on it, but just for the reaction of it and kind of the finality of, well, this is done for this year and we're going to have to come back and restart the first of the year. Where are you at on this? Yeah, well, I don't think it was ever in the cards of happening this year. You know, session's about to end and it's a it's a big bill. So, um, you know, I think even a week ago, Democrats did say they wanted to table it and go in favor of uh, voting rights, which I still think was too big of an issue to get in before the new year. But Joe Manchin's kind of given us the uh, the whiplash, I think, a little bit because yesterday he says he wasn't in. And then last night, rumors has it that he's back in. So, you know, I, I think it's something that's going to have to be done after um, after the new year. But he did give us something which was important, which is he's out on child tax credit. So he gave a revised version of Build Back Better that says he does not want the child tax credit involved. So for we we've heard the term, people are familiar with it. They understand tax credit. You put child on the front, they kind of probably have a preconceived notion on. So just explain it to me real quick, like I'm five. This specific version of the child tax credit, it's obviously not a new idea, but what was different about this that made it such a sticking point in this legislation? Yeah. So like you said, it's been around for a while. It was limited to $167 per child before COVID. Um, during the COVID relief package under Biden, he expanded that to $300 per child and really opened up the amount of people eligible for the program. So you could get, I think, up to $15,000 a year. So the policy was actually super effective. And I, I think it surprised a bunch of people, but it reduced child poverty in the United States by over 50%, which as far as a policy goes, this is about as good as you could ask for it to do. So what the goal was with this and what the goal is with tying it with Build Back Better was to basically make it a permanent program make these changes permanent, not just part of the COVID relief. So that's that's what we're talking about. And that's what you're going to see and hear when you talk about child tax credit in the news now is this expanded version of the program. Now, to be fair to Joe Manchin, this is something he's been a little consistent with, with a lot of the Build Back Better uh, criticism he has is he's saying, look, we're doing, we're doing what we always do, where we're going to fund this for 10 years, and then there's no funding after that, and we're going to have to come back. Uh, is that a legitimate criticism here? You're talking about needing to make this permanent. Is, is this just another example of something that would be probably pretty good policy and pretty popular policy on its own? But when you jam it into a large package like this, it kind of gets lost and you wind up with machinations like this kind of working against it. Yeah. And I, I think there's something to be said about, you know, all of these being passed in, in one fell swoop. Um, 
I feel like with Joe Manchin specifically, he's targeting the one to three year programs. And for good reason, you know, he's saying, let's fund these programs that can be extremely long term and have a huge difference rather than have this argument in two to three years. Um, With the one exception being the child tax program and child tax credit. And no one's quite sure why. Um, There was a rumor coming out on the Huffington Post yesterday that he uh, he says that the the parents are going to use the the tax credit for drugs and other things like that. And, you know, that's anecdotal. In fact, we have really strong evidence that people are using it towards fruit security. People are using it towards rent utilities. So we're not quite sure why he's against the tax credit, but regardless, it can be passed as its own bill. And Senator Mitt Romney is kind of leading the charge on doing a bipartisan version of the bill in which it would most likely be 49 Democrats and Mitt Romney to get it passed. And one of the things I kind of, caution folks is like, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves with this build back better is dead thing. This is already in reconciliation. So what's going to happen when they come back in the spring is they're going to go through these piecemeal anyway. It's interesting that Romney's gotten involved. There's a few other high profile centers. This certainly seems like something that could be parsed out and passed and sent back to the house and might actually have a chance of coming out of reconciliation. Are we just getting way ahead of ourselves on especially the child tax credit portion of this that this you know just three four weeks from now when congress comes back and and reconvenes we may be looking at a whole different thing yeah for sure um the reason that it's so expedient to do child tax credit is because we are at risk of having about three million children fall back into poverty so that's why people want to get it done this december rather than push it off to a february or march um, the rest of the Build Back Better, you're right, that a lot of people feared it's, it's dead. And I, I don't think that's true at all. And I don't think, I think most Democrats think that's untrue as well. It can be piecemealed out and you can get a few Republicans to join. Or, you know, as it was mentioned yesterday, Joe Manchin introduced his own Build Back Better revised version, which can be passed with 49 Democrats and him come come the new year. So it's it's far from dead. I think people are really scared and you know, people have bias of the moment where they think the moment they're living is the most important and that they forget, you know, Obamacare took two years to pass and other, other major legislations like that weren't done in the first year. Yeah. Talking to Toff Cottle from Young Voices. And uh, let's let's take it this way as well, while we're talking about still the the kind of the collective discourse just fell apart on itself. Why is it that people get so wrapped up on a specific? I know we do this with every election is the most you know influential of our lifetime. What is it this year? I kind of think, and you tell me if you disagree. I think the narrative on this was wrong from the go. You mentioned it in your opening. Uh, this is a 50-50 Senate. I don't think a lot of this had a chance to pass either which way. Why is it that people got so invested in it? Is it just the lack of other things getting done besides infrastructure? Is it the specific policy? What is it that you think people got so invested in this package? Ooh, that's a good question. For me, I think, you know, this was this is what was promised throughout the election, right? This was this was Joe Biden's slogan in the campaign. And now it's his now it's his marquee um legislation and unlike past presidents that had a a motive you know you talk about trump and the wall and you know these symbolic pieces having a spending package isn't that exciting um it's it's good and i i I think it's i think it's good to you know fund these programs but they they hyped it up a lot and they did the marketing around it really well because 
it in and of itself, it's not that exciting and not that marketable. So I think, I think the party itself built it up to be a lot bigger than it is because they, they needed to ride something and they needed that popularity. Um, you know, the, the calling card all year has been build back better, um, both the slogan and the, the legislation. So they built it up and you see even yesterday there were there were a few democrats that were just completely devastated that they weren't going to be able to get the the full package out um immediately um to which i say it'll happen next year um you're a policy guy so let me put it to you this way was a lot of this a slogan looking for some policy because we understand that these things are on two tracks. There's the sloganeering of it. And then there's stuff that's got to be written in black and white for the actual legislative. Those things sure seem to be moving at different speeds in this particular case. Uh, is that a fair criticism that this was heavy on slogan? And we we're, we're all adults here. We understand big legislative package. This is stuff that sits on the shelf and they pull it out as opportunity arises. You know, that a lot of this is pre-written. Was that is that a fair criticism here that the sloganeering got in the way of the policy making here and they just way overshot for what the tactics on the ground called for? I'd say in a way, probably yes. Um, remember that the first uh, the first proposed legislation was over four trillion. And I think we're down to one point eight now. It'll probably get down to one point five, one point four by the end. Um, and so they've just been riding this wave of of, of big spending and. You're right that a lot of these a lot of these policies were were pre-written. You know, a lot of these climate things they had involved in the bill were were things that we had been planning for years, um, and packaging it all together and getting it out was was kind of the the point of of the the slogan and the point of the legislation. Um, so, at the end of the day, I think it's a lot of policies that are going to be passed that could be passed piecemeal. They could be passed one by one, but it is important important for Biden to have it passed all at once because that's what was promised and that's what he kind of built his campaign on and his promise on. Yeah, we're talking to Top Fikadal. Uh Breaking down the Build Back Better and turning down the noise on all that, we're going to continue with him right after this on Hartel Radio. Back to Hertel Radio. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for taking the time. We're talking to Toff Cottle. Uh, we're breaking down and turning down the noise on the Build Back Better collective freakout. I've called it because we're on you know day two or three now of people losing their minds over this. Um, let, let's take the alternate approach for a second. I don't believe the story about you know Mansion and saying this is just going to go to drug dealers and stuff because. I am a West Virginian. We don't usually use stereotypes like that against ourselves. There's a long running. Uh, there's a long running feud between the more progressive left and mansion and they love to backbite each other. I suspect that's where some of that's coming from, but let's take the other side of it. Uh, small government conservatives, people on the right, they do have concerns about government spending. What's the pitch for the child tax credit? Why is this good governance? Why is this a good expenditure of government? Yeah. So like I, like I mentioned earlier, when it, after it was expanded, I think it was something that was almost a footnote on the, uh, the COVID relief plan because everyone was so concerned about stimulus checks, but, you know, almost doubling the amount of um, money that a family can get per child had a huge effect. And as far as policy goes, and as far as, you know, 
we're, it's, as far as it being a guessing game, reducing child poverty by 50% in the United States is, is as good as you can ask a policy to be. So all we're, all we're asking for is to codify these changes and basically keep these three to 4 million children out of poverty. Um, you know, we talk about we're a country of equal opportunity, but not equal outcome. This is as good as we can get it, I think, um, as far as providing that and giving kids the safety of having a stable household, having stable food security and things like that. So, you know, this is this is affecting red and blue states. This is affecting kids. You know, we we have these arguments, you know, as far as conservatives go, that we need to be a country of self-starters and we need to be a country that you know works hard. But these are children. And at the end of the day, these are kids that can't really, you know, pull themselves up by their their Velcro shoes. Um, they need the help and they need the support that the government gives. The United States is second to last in OECD spending or on family spending in the OECD. We have 20% of our kids that grow up in poverty. So reducing that down to 10%, you know, pretty simple ask to do. Um, so an amazing idea. Now, the counter argument to that is we've heard this before. Uh, we're 60 some years into the war on poverty and we still have plenty of poverty. Uh, what makes this difference? Is the circumstances on the ground different? Is how the government's doing it different? Uh, is the technology changing how we deal with this? What, what's the argument for folks to do the pushback and say, yeah, we want to help the kids, but we're always helping the kids. And that's always the excuse for a massive government program, yada, yada, yada. How do you answer those charges and push back on that? Yeah, um, very interesting. But I think I think one of the more recent developments in, in um, poverty reduction and all these studies, and it's the most ironic one of all, but giving people money reduces poverty. Um, and that's something that we haven't done for 60 years. Um, we did these ginormous government programs like SNAP that require tons of administration. They have tons of waste. They don't get to everybody in rural communities. Now we have the technology and I think we always have, but you know, we can deposit directly in people's bank accounts and it requires next to no administration. It requires a few people at the IRS, you know, pressing a button. Um, and it's immediate, it's, um, consistent and it's impactful. Um, so I think I think that's the change um, compared to these other programs. What is it that you think? Because uh, you know we do everything for the children, everything you know for the children. It's almost become its own meme, come to life now. Uh, but there is a lot of data out there about childhood development, children that grow up malnourished, children that grow up in poverty, the way that affects greater society. If, if you're going to argue that we can put money directly in the hands of these parents and the caregivers for these children directly, uh, what's kind of the force multiplier here that you're arguing for? Because we know what childhood uh, issues like poverty deal with them, how those extrapolate over time. We've got a lot of data on that now. If you're cutting that down by like 50 percent, if that stat holds up, this could be really game changing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think something a lot of people worry about is, is the parents. And, you know, I've had, a you know, even Senator Joe Manchin was the one who said, you know, I think I think these parents are using it to buy drugs. And I'm sure that's the case in one or two families. But at the end of the day, bad parents are bad parents. Um, the, what this is going to do and basically is going to make sure that no kid goes hungry. It's going to make sure that a lot of these kids are able to stay in households, even if it is with bad parents. You know, they're going to be able to have a stable place in which live. Um, a lot of studies show that kids that can grow up with, with housing security have a lot better outcomes. That's the entire reason that Habitat for Humanity exists. You know, they're building houses, they're keeping families in, in stable places. Um, I think this is a bill that will pay for itself. You know, you talk about getting 
10% of, or another 10% of us kids into, you know, high school diplomas, into, into well-paying jobs, into not having these childhood traumas that um, really plague our society, you're going to make that back in tax revenue. Um, and that's what the government should do. The government should be investing in itself. The government should be investing in its future citizens. So I think, I think the policy is a win-win. Um, I'll say there is a campaign right now. It's at savethectc.org. Um, go sign the petition. We're going to be presenting it to a bunch of of representatives and senators around the United States. Um, like I said earlier, there's uh, Senator Romney has a has a proposed say the child tax credit plan, um, which he and 49 Democrats are most likely to pass as an independent thing. So I think it's a win win. It's not tied to Build Back Better. So if you're against that legislation, that's that's aside from the issue now. Is this one of those things that really ought to be a little more bipartisan? Even if you don't think the child tax credit is the best thing in the world, this is at least a more productive conversation of, hey, how do we get help to kids? Can we do it through, you know, direct money to them instead of government programs we can pare down? This seems like a much more productive uh, use of our time than some of the other things we have going, doesn't it? Yeah, that's that's exactly the point. That's why I keep saying win-win, right? It's a uh it's an effective policy and it's something that if we can't pass it, it really does highlight the, the dis- dysfunctionality of our government um, to conservatives credit and to the point it's, it's less government bureaucracy. It's way more effective spending. It's w- it's wasting a lot less taxpayer dollars. So there's the conservative pitch on it. The liberal pitch on it is, you know, it's still spending It's spending on families and it's something that we can really come together and say, Hey, this is a really effective policy and we should keep going on it. Uh, Toff Cottle, we sure appreciate your time today. Fascinating guy. Look him up, follow him. Uh, some other time we'll get him on and find out how a nice young man like him wound up in Madagascar. I would love to hear <laughs> that story. Uh, let folks know where they can find you and what you have going on, my friends, so they can follow you. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter at TC underscore elk. Um, you can follow my stuff and I also keep up with China quite a bit. So if you're interested in any China policy, um, you know, military strategy in the Pacific, South Pacific, uh, follow me and I'll, I'll keep the discourse going on that as well. Yeah, we'll definitely have you on for that because we're talking China a lot lately, especially with some of the new stuff. And I'm sure with the Olympics coming up, we'll have to do it even more because we're going to have to counter program a little bit of propaganda, I fear, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a propaganda machine out there. Yeah, we've seen this movie before. Tough Coddle. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. Really appreciate it. Another one of those great young voices we get to work with. Appreciate you. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Thank you. If you want to talk about culture and politics without all the caterwauling, then you'll love Hertel Radio with me, your host, Andrew Donaldson, every weekday morning, 6 a.m. with a replay at 3 p.m. right here on The Big Talker. Catch it on the Listen Live tab, on the app, or watch on the Facebook page. Back to Hertel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, One more thing about this fallout uh, with Joe Manchin and the way they they went after my home state of West Virginia. Uh, I want to remind you again, social media is what you make of it. If you want to know about a place, let's say West Virginia, there is lots of West Virginians on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook. If you want to know what they think, just talk to them. Just ask them. Furthermore, 
if all you listen to is national media, this is a great example of why you need to take in local media that is doing whatever the issue at hand is. So if you're somewhere else in the country and everybody's talking about West Virginia, why would you listen to CNN's opinion on it? West Virginia has excellent local and state level media, great media. If you're worried about it, most of that media is more center left progressive type of ideology behind their media, even though it's a red state. But maybe that's something you didn't realize either because it's dubbed as Trump country. You don't realize their media is more progressive leaning. These are all local things that you need to understand part of the story with. So when a story comes out, like what's going on with West Virginia Joe Manchin, dig into the local and state level media and try to get that perspective because they usually know more about what's actually going on. For example, the Joe Manchin interview with Hoppy Kirchival was infinitely better than anything he's ever done on CNN or anywhere else because Hoppy Kirchival has interviewed him a hundred times. They know each other. They have a familiarity. There's none of the nonsense. Hoppy will just interrupt him and cut through him because he knows his mannerisms and stuff. That interview was fantastic, and it was much more insightful than anything you saw on a five-minute media stand-up for CNN or any other network. I'm not knocking them, but their general purpose because they're covering the whole country. Local media is the specialist, and we, we've talked on this show about the death of local media really affecting our culture, and we'll continue to raise those issues. But whenever something happens, and it's a local or state-level issue, try to go to the local and state-level media. They usually have a better handle on it. They'll give you better information on it, and you can start to turn down the noise a little bit because the national narratives have to be fed. They're living, breathing things, and folks live and breathe and feed them to keep them going. And the local folks, they have their own narratives, and they're different, but it will be very helpful to you to take those in. More Heard Tell right after this. One more little tidbit on Hertel as we uh, wrap up the show for today. Uh, it is telling to me the fallout from this uh, Joe Manchin stuff and Build Back Better and the end of the legislative agenda and people freaking out online. It was amazing to me to watch. And maybe I'm a little touchy with it because it's West Virginia. And, you know, I love West Virginia with all of my being. So I'm sensitive to it. But isn't it interesting how fast the folks who insist that what they're doing is for your good. And we're just trying to help them people. And the moment they don't get it, they switch their language and their tenor of their tone to, well, why do those people count in the first place? Isn't that fascinating? The people who yell the loudest about wanting to help somebody and don't you understand we're just trying to help you? The moment they don't get what they want, which is ostensibly to help somebody, all of a sudden it's well, they don't matter anyway. Their population is small. They're poor. They're whatever. They're rural. They don't matter at all when they don't get their way. People tell you what they really think. You just got to keep them talking long enough, and they'll tell you exactly what they think of you, what they think of themselves, and what they really think about what they're advocating for and what it's really supposed to be doing. That's why we call this place Heard Tell. You hear things. You heard tell. It's the old word of mouth sort of thing. And we try to turn down the noise and get to the information that matters. So when people tell you things like that, and it's counter to what they said previously, 
and their vitriol comes out when they said all along they were just trying to help, those folks are telling you something and don't have anything to do with politics. has a lot to do with their character, though, and that affects their politics. Judge accordingly. I'll do it for her tell. So glad you joined us, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on any of the podcasting platforms. We sure appreciate it. Make sure you're subscribing. Make sure you share us on your social media. It only costs you a click, but it means a great deal to us. Uh, and however you're watching across the street or around the world, we sure do appreciate you. Uh, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you're well fed. Uh, continue to have a great holiday season, and we'll see you tomorrow for more her tell. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.